Welcome back to Trader Chats, everyone. Today's episode is called Bond Markets, Signal or Noise? And with me, I've got Hussein Nasser. Welcome to Trader Chats, mate. How are you? Thank you, mate. Yeah, I'm all right, actually. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, why don't we start by you, you know, telling the audience a little bit about your background and what, what you've been doing with your career for the last 20, 25 years and... Um, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, like, I think these days I'm probably not as distinguished as some of the other guests you've had on, on this. Like, <laughs> these days I'm just kind of a guy at home who trades his own account. But I think that I started out, I guess, in the market in 2000, so probably a little bit before you. I think we actually were at the LSC at the same time. We overlapped for a couple of years. Um, you know, you went to equities, I went to bonds. Um, as they say, Michael Lewis ruined my life. I think equity guys probably had a lot more fun than the bond guys over the years. But uh, at that time, you know, I was dead set on being a bond trader and I ended up on a on a syndicate desk. And for those that don't know what those are, those are the guys that sit between, I guess, investors and borrowers and kind of price big new issues. Um, we were doing that in the bond market. And then you know, I was hired to basically trade new issues back when banks underwrote things hard, where you just took down a bunch of stuff and hoped to sell it. And then the market structure kind of changed. So I moved on and did, you know, traded some IG investment grade corporates. I started out trading triple A's, which are agencies and then, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and then basically the US dollar offshore market, the original Euro bond market, right? Where you had a lots of kind of foreign governments, Denmark, Italy, um, Netherlands, et cetera, issuing in US dollars. So I traded those bonds for a while. Then I went on and did, I guess, investment grade, high yield, and kind of migrated down the, the, the credit curve. In my most recent gig, um, I was trading high yield bonds um, for a bank in London. Um, prior to that, I guess where I had my, the most fun was as a credit default swap trader, um, kind of pre-GFC and post-GFC across a few places. So it's been, it, it's, it, it's been, it's been a journey. I think I've traded pretty much everything on the credit side at some point mm-hmm. with the exception of like deep distressed. I think that's the only thing I've not really looked. I've kind of dabbled in that stuff a little bit by accident. Like if I end up having a position in it when I shouldn't have, um, but on the whole, I've pretty much traded a lot of credit stuff throughout the years. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. And um, so then, you know, tell us then, right, you've been in, in, in the bond side for what, 20 plus years, right? So what's the life, what's the day to day of a bond trader like? Right? What, what, do you, what do you spend your day doing? Well, I mean, as a market maker on the bond side, I think the, the job kind of changed, right? Like when I started out, it was purely a voice market. So people would call you and they'd say, I want an offer in XYZ bond. Um, or I want a bid, a bid being they want to sell it, an offer being they want to buy it. Um, And it was all purely done on the phone, right? Now, typically the minimum size in Europe for a bond is 100,000 notional. So it's 100,000 face of a bond. Mm. Um, And that's like the minimum. And then the sizes go all the way up to like 25, 50, 100, um, et cetera. So the thing is that when I first started, it was like phones, 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 phones. You were constantly on the phone, quoting prices, um, in the interdealer broker market, trying to figure out um, where stuff is. Um, and it became, yeah, it was, it was fairly intense, but it was also fairly illiquid. As time went on in Europe, um, it became a lot more electronic. So essentially what you were doing was you were pricing up, instead of people calling you for a trade, clients would interact directly with you through some kind of gateway and you would spend your day pricing a ticket on a screen, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, as my career went on, you went back to the CDS market and CDS market went entirely back to voice. 
right? The only difference being that um, on the CDS market, the sizes were just bigger, right? Because they're derivatives, you have costs per trade, et cetera. Your minimum size went from like 100K up to like $5 million, 5 million euros, whatever the, the notional was. Um, and then as time went on, um, it became more and more electronic. And then the CDS market kind of faded out. Um, and you had more time to think really, I think, as a trader, right? Like essentially desks got mm -hmm. smaller, so traders kind of had to do more. The line between, you know, a salesperson and a trader kind of blurred. You know, as a trader, you were expected to have a lot of client contact. You were expected to have mm -hmm. a lot more discussions with clients. And we always did it, right, throughout the years. But typically it was like, you know, mm -hmm. you do like a Tuesday meeting at the office, Wednesday drink with the client, Thursday you'd be out to dinner until whatever. And Yeah, and, and, and in a competitive marketplace, having that direct client relationship where the client can put a face to the guy he's dealing with, that helps massively, right? It was huge. And it became a very much relationship business. And then, but then, you know, towards the end, um, it became a lot more about, you know, clients, I guess, got a little bit smarter as they do um, in terms of like how they, and they always talk about their wallet, right? So they talk about kind of like where they're giving their business. They keep track of who they're dealing with and they keep track of you on the firm basis. So it became a lot more difficult to differentiate yourself as a kind of person within a bank, as opposed to like, um, it was a bank and then this happened to be a good guy there, right? Type, type. Yeah, thing. it's like, you know, so clients like we already pay you this in this asset class and this asset class, so we can't do any more business with you, even if we like you kind of thing. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. Right. So now, you know, so towards the end of it, what was your day to day like? You know, typically in the high yield market, which is where I was, you know, if you think the equity market is about finding winners, right? It's the, it's the 10 bagger. You grab a couple of 10 baggers in your career, you're a rock star. Um, and you know, you go out, you buy your Ferraris, your champagne corks popping, whatever. The high yield market is very different. The way you make money in high yield, at least that where I found it on, um, as an investor is avoiding the losers. Right. Right. right? Makes like if you look yeah. at your portfolio, like this, it, it kind of changed a little bit, I guess. It got a little bit worse during QE, actually. We can come back to that later on. But I think that, you know, what do you do as a high-yield investor is that your portfolio generates a bunch of carry. Yeah. And where do you lose money? You lose money when something defaults mm -hmm. or when you have to sell something because they get downgraded. Yeah. Right? So if you think about your portfolio as a high-yield investor, you know, what is the no arbitrage constraint? It's basically you're going to get paid your risk-free rate plus your default rate, your forward default rate, plus some compensation. Whoa, for, whoa, 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 go back. Go, what, what do you mean your forward default rate? So you, basically how many companies are going to go bust in your portfolio? Okay. Because the high yield market, companies actually go into bankruptcy, right? This is a very risky part of the market. So you're saying the yield you receive is pricing, the premium you get above risk-free rate is a function of how, what the what the number of potential bankruptcies is going to be basically. Yeah. And it can be, well, that's, that's essentially what you should get paid. Now clearly you can get paid less, but that's really not a way to make money long-term, right? If you're, if you're constantly, if you're paying 1% on you're getting paid 1% on your portfolio and your default rate loss given default is 3%, you're not going to hang around much, right? Like it's not, it's not a yeah, good Yeah, sure. Answer. Okay. Um, and on top of that, you get some kind of risk premium for essentially doing the work kind of the transition between rating buckets, which cause you to have to change your, your portfolio composition and pay bid offer, right? Bid offer in the yield market is quite big. Wide. Yeah, yeah, imagine. Um, so essentially, 
you know, what can you actually control as a portfolio manager is minimizing your defaults. Mm, mm. Right. And that became, and how does one do that? How does one go about doing that? Well, it, it involves a lot of credit work. It involves understanding the industry, it involves understanding the, the financials of a company, the management of a company, which is probably the most important thing. Um, you know, what is the forward trajectory for earnings? Um, what you know, who could buy them, <laughs> right? What are your what are the documents in your bonds say? Like, for example, can they these days what tends to happen a lot is they layer you what's called layering right so essentially typically when you buy a high yield bond they will tell there's some kind of security package right i mean sometimes there aren't there are subordinated bonds as well but like a lot of the time you will buy a bond and you will have a call on the assets mm-hmm. now what's been happening recently is those covenants which are basically an agreement of terms between a borrower and a lender saying you cannot do this, you cannot do that, you have to do this. Like you have to tell me your numbers every three months. Mm. You have to basically um, keep your leverage below a certain number. Um, As those covenants have gotten weaker and they've become a lot more kind of loose, what's been happening is you've been getting these layering transactions, right? So I owned a senior secured bond and they go and issue something with even more security ahead of me. So my value is somewhat lower. Okay. Okay. So, you know, how do you, that's a long way to kind of answer your question in terms of like, how do you do that? Well, a lot of it is just detailed analysis. It's Mm -hmm. fundamental investing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's basically, you're trying to buy something um, essentially below fair value, right? Typically in credit, you make money buying something cheap, selling it at fair value, right? Whereas as opposed to other things where I think you make a lot of money shorting things high and selling low. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so, that, so, so obviously we've talked a bit about credit, but if we just talk about kind of regular bonds, uh, fixed income, right? Um, in terms of government credit and treasuries and stuff. So, you know, a lot, there's, there's a common perception in the market, right? That fixed income traders are way smarter than equity traders and commodity traders, right? <laughs> And we're all emotional nutcases who are like chasing stories and stuff. And, and we, you know, we're nowhere near as educated or smart. And then the fixed income guys were all the maths geeks who went into fixed income and they spend all day analyzing data and figuring out where the economy's headed. And then they trade rates to reflect that. So the argument is there's a lot more signal in what rates markets are doing versus maybe other markets, which are a bit more noisy, right? And Raul Powell of Real Vision says that, you know, he calls the, the yield curve, uh, not the yield curve, the 10-year yield chart, the chart of truth. And he just zooms out 50 years and sees that thing trending down in a channel. And it's pretty much telling him where we're headed in terms of economics, right? So how do you feel, being someone who was in the fixed income markets and kind of trading that stuff all the time, did you feel like there was a lot of noise in there and, and, and less signal than um, us from the outside world think about fixed income? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I think, you know, the first assertion you made that fixed income guys are smarter than equity guys, I would almost doubt. I think that you know, I was listening to a podcast. Good to know, because I'm equities. <laughs> yeah, I know you are. But you, but wait till you hear why. But, I, you know, I was listening to a podcast a while ago where they said, you know, Michael Lewis ruined my life. Mm. I think you probably did the same for me, right? Like, I think, you know, everyone read Liar's Poker when we were at universities. And I yeah. want to be a fixed income guy because it's like, you know, that's where your theaters go. Yeah. And when you look at it, the story of the last 20 years, like equity guys have had a much easier ride. Like, I mean, it's just been a much easier kind of um, 
Well, yeah, but that's why they're that's why we're always bullish, right? That's why equity guys yeah. are pretty much always bullish, aren't Yeah, they? and it was it, it's always hilarious, right? I remember my my grad class, like all the guys that went into equities, right? The first thing they buy with their bonus is like a secondhand Porsche or something, right? Whereas you know the fixed income guys, are like, oh, I'm gonna like you know, I don't know buy a house or something, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's a different <laughs> mentality. Or I'm just gonna save it, put it in the market or something. Yeah. Um, but coming back to the original question about signal and noise, I think it's very difficult. It's very difficult to say, like. If you look at macro, like macro guys will tell you that there are three, the three most important prices in the world are the price of energy, the level of the US dollar and the 10-year treasury. All right. And based on that, you can create a macro model of what will happen going forward, um, et cetera. Now, in terms of like treasuries, in terms of rates, you know, the signal B noise, I think is a very difficult question to ask, right? I think... I've never seen anyone back test it. Like I've always seen, like if you, the only reason I would be skeptical is that in my mind, I think it's far easier to forecast the level of Fed funds on a forward basis than it mm -hmm. is to forecast inflation or anything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't know which banks produce this, but every so often they chuck out a graph and they go at fixed points, the expected path of Fed funds versus what Fed funds actually was. And it's, you know, everyone's always wrong. <laughs> yeah, right? they are always wrong. Well, right. they always assume Fed funds are going to go up much quicker and it never does, right? Yeah, it's or, I mean, they're down much slower. I mean, so yeah. it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I think that on a day-to-day -day basis, you're definitely driven by flows. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I think a lot of the, the debate around signal versus noise is, I don't want to say it's mischaracterized, but I think, I think it's just very difficult to have an, have an unbiased signal from the market, right? So I just think that every time someone says the market is telling you something, it's because they have a bias that they're looking to confirm. Mm. Now, you know, could you turn around and say, well, the yield curve is steep because we think, I don't know, we think rates are going up in the future. Uh, we think growth is gonna go up and, you know, that's, that, that's great. Or is it like, I don't know what happened in 2002, three, whatever it was, where the treasury just decided that they're going to flip all their issuance uh, into 30 years, right? And the mm -hmm. curve just steepens out. I think it actually, at the time, I think it actually flattened. But let's just say they decide that they're going to issue all their bonds in 30 years, mm -hmm. right? And that's why it's so steep. Does that mean that that's a signal for the future economy, right? Or mm -hmm. what's it telling you, right? So I think it's very difficult to take an unambiguous unbiased signal from the market. You can take some signals from it. You can say like, okay, you can look at the level of credit spreads as kind of, you know, you could have natural rate theory, which I think was popular for a while. And you can say that, you know, there is a natural rate in the economy, which basically, you know, some people say is the triple B spread level, currently around 4%. Um, and then they say, oh yeah, well, you've got like Fed funds here, so rates are too low. Uh, the market's telling you the natural rate should be up there. It, it, it's a very different one. I would definitely say day to day, it's all about positioning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, back when I was trading US dollars, triple A's and dabbling in treasuries, the biggest buyers, the biggest market was in Asia, mm -hmm. right? The central bank of China, Taipei, SAFE, Monetary Authority, Singapore, HKMA, all these guys, they were the guys setting the price because they would decide, they would decide one day, I think seven years are cheap versus twos and they would sell them bunch of two-year treasuries and buy seven-year spread product, right? right? Um, 
And that happens throughout the world. Now, maybe they have a model, maybe they do, maybe they don't, or maybe they have an asset allocation thing, right? Or maybe they have, you know, you've also got, you've got a lot of players in the bond market. So it's difficult to say that all that the dominant kind of theme will somehow come out in the wash. Now, there are people who would argue with me and say, no, 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 if you have the wisdom of crowds and it all comes out and it's all good. And to that, I would just say, maybe, but the truth is, I just don't know. I'll give you an example, right, from my perspective as an equities trader. So I was trading in 2007, 2008, okay, running a FTSE book at Merrill Lynch. And I had some very close friends in the credit market, okay, pretty much doing what you were doing, right, to some extent in CDS. And they were like, the world is ending over here, right, in credit, okay? Like the moves in credit, it was just carnage. And equities people were sitting there completely not caring, smoking crack, you know, in the sunshine, without care in the world, okay? And I even had a dinner with a client in the summer of 2008, after credit markets had done what they'd done in 07, okay? And he was like going, what do you think of these markets? And I was like, I think these markets are insane, right? Like they're completely the wrong price, yeah? And, um, and it was because of that signal that I believed was in the credit market, which equities hadn't figured out yet, right? Now, whether that was true or whether there's a, there's a much longer story and, and reasons that created the liquidation that ended up happening later in 2008, but it very much seemed like the credit guys knew what was happening and the equity guys kind of didn't, right? So um, that yeah, was partly, I, mean, I, I used to use that credit market as a bit of a leading indicator and a bit of a signal. And that leads me on to my next question, which is, do you feel like the signal in credit markets, if there ever was one, um, is kind of gone now because of all the distortion through QE, uh, all the stuff that, that the Fed's been buying and mortgage, mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that, and even the ECB, right, in terms of um, what they've been buying, right, for, for and exploding all their balance sheets. Has that just completely taken the signal out of credit markets, in your opinion? Um, I mean, let's come back to your, 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 your first point about the signal in credit and it being leading. I think that was one of those points where you could say, I think in my career, there have been a few points where you've said, um, where you've seen the credit market lead kind of equities, right? 2007, eight was definitely one of them. Um, the other one was the Euro crisis, I guess, 10, 11-ish, I think somewhere around there. Around yeah. there. Um, but on the whole, they tend to move together. I think those, are, those actually were, to my mind, they were aberrations, right? I think that for the most part, you know, I'm trying to think in my head if there was ever a moment where the equity market kind of told you there was something wrong and it kind of led. Um, I think the only time... Huh? Doubt, doubtful. We're all they're well, too it bullish. Depends where you look, right? Like if you look at the kind of headline indices, given mm. the amount of noise in there within within an index, it's difficult. But I definitely think things like European banks have signaled problems in the equity market for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, sector rotations and under the hood type moves in equities. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. Definitely, right? So yeah. I mean, you know, we on the yeah, but you know what the market. irony is? The irony to what you're saying is that's because credit traders are trading European bank stocks against their credit a lot. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah they are. Hard. They are 100%. Yeah. But like, so, I mean, that comes back to my point. I think a lot of the time they do trade together. And I think there is this aberration between the two, mm. uh, those two incidences. You know, coming back to what we think now in terms of that, I mean, 
look, I've not been in the market for about a year and change. So it's, it's difficult to say. But I, what I can tell you is what happened post-QE. Mm. And this hopefully answers your question. But I think what happened post-QE for corporates was you just saw massive dispersion, right? And I think what the reason for that was that by essentially lowering the spread, you reduce the essentially the break-evens on the portfolio, right? Like portfolio managers will look at their portfolios and say, I'm getting paid 5% on my high-yield bonds. If I'm wrong on the X percent of my portfolio, it doesn't impact performance all that much. Mm. Right now, when you're at two percent, your room for maneuver is significantly limited. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot more index hugging, which is true. You get a lot, a lot more, more. Sorry, a lot more what index, index hugging in terms okay. of people want to follow the index because okay. that's how they they get benchmarked to an index in high yield, right? So okay, it's okay. like a Barclays and Merrill Lynch. There's all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and then in terms of their off-piste positioning, it's significantely lower. So they de-risk. Was, so effectively they're de-risking, right? Well, it's not just that. I think more of it is just that the minute something looks like it's about to dump, your universe of buyers shrinks considerably, right? No and one wants to touch it. No one wants to, yeah, no one wants yeah. to speculate or touch it, basically. Yeah. And people have always done the, these, these charts, right? Where you've got like credits that used to be really loved, right? How many poor earnings numbers does it take before hope gets thrown out the window? Yeah. Right? Okay. And typically it's about three. And I think it's true. Three, three is true in the equity market as well, right? Three bad numbers and everyone just dumps it. Right? Look at Facebook. Facebook yeah. had two mediocre sets of numbers. The stock held up. One third time, no, that's it. It's going to take a lot for it to come yeah, out. Yeah, three strikes and you're out, right? Pretty much, right? Yeah. And I think what happened post QE was that the first strike, whereas before a bond would move maybe five points, if it was a bad number, it now moved 10. Okay. Okay. And it took, it it just accentuated everything. So now the flip side is that stuff rebounded as well, right? You also had like the big kind of moves up because, oh, it was just an aberration. Okay. No problem. Um, But in terms of like the signal and the noise on the credit side, you know, looking at kind of aggregate numbers, it's, I guess it's difficult because it is suppressed. But mm. like, like we said about the equity market under the hood, mm. it does a decent job. It does a decent job of like okay. saying, yeah, yeah. And you've also got a lot of people who are like kind of, I would say arguably, you know, one of the big themes for the last 20 years has been how prominent dis- the distressed funds have been. These are guys that buy bankrupt companies. Right, and how they have changed the structure. Like typically in Europe, you know, people are gonna shout at me for saying this, but it's like, you know, it's a 50 billion, 50 billion of money chasing like 15 billion of opportunity, right? right. <laughs> so typically it tends to be overpriced, but it's, I don't think part of that maybe you can say is because of QE, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that it's, to answer your question, yes, I think we probably, on the credit side, on a single name basis, maybe we're overpriced because of it. But I'd say the effect is maybe from a roundabout way because of distressed funds. Mm, no, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of, all right. So the way I would interpret what you said is, so the overall level of credit is impacted by QE. So mm-hmm. everything kind of gets tighter, right? But then the differentiation inside the credit market 
is where the signal still remains basically right so if you see a company and you see the fundamentals deteriorating the difference between um you know where that's trading and 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 a, a regular credit that isn't that isn't hasn't got problems that's going to widen out much faster much quicker because people won't want to touch that basically right because that liquidity is kind of reduced that risk appetite's reduced as well um Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's similar to equities, right? Like looking at the S&P gives you no signal, right? It gives you no idea what's really happening. Yeah. Whereas looking under the hood at what's going on in terms of style factors, what's going on in terms of sectors, tells you a whole lot more about, about what the market's pricing and discounting, right? So I guess, yeah, to get any signal out of markets now, you have to be able to look a bit deeper, peel the onion a bit more and see what's going on under the surface, basically, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, and then the, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around in the media, uh, on Twitter, and, and, you know, in general, uh, about the plumbing in, in the rates market, okay. and, and things like repo, and things like funding and liquidity stresses. And there's that guy Zoltan Pozar, who writes a lot, and I hardly understand anything he says. But you know, it's interesting to just see what he's saying. But I just think people struggle with that, right? Because we haven't traded those markets. We don't know the semantics of what the hell a repo is even, right? We've never done that trade, right? We've never got any reason to do that trade in our lives as a PA trade, as a retail guy. So how do you understand really what it means, right? And um, I think maybe if you could break down a few of those terms for people, it might really help them, basically. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim to be an expert on the Fed's plumbing and the Fed's balance sheet and stuff like that. I mean, there are guys who have blogs and stuff that do that, but I mean, yeah. you know, at its most basic, let's start with repo, right? Repo yeah. is a repurchase transaction, and okay. what that means is it's it's a way of essentially gaining a leverage on a transaction. So let's take an example. Let's say you own Tesla stock. Let's use a stock instead of a bond. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Tesla has, uh, let's say you're an institution, you've got $100,000 worth of Tesla, um, and you're looking for an incremental yield to your position. <clears throat> what you do is you call up a bank and you say, I've got $100,000 worth of Tesla, mm-hmm. um, and I want to borrow money against it and use this as collateral against the borrowing. So in a similar way that you use your house to get collateral for a mortgage loan, you're going to do this for Tesla. Typically, these things are done on an overnight basis, so they reset every day. So you say, okay, give me, how much money can you give me for this, Mm -hmm. this Tesla bond, for this Tesla, sorry, this Tesla stock? Um, And then tomorrow, we're going to reverse the transaction. You're going to give me back my stock, and I'm going to give you back some money. So the repo dealer, what he's going to say is he's going to say, first of all, he's going to give you a haircut. He's not going to lend you 100% of the principal. No. Because there's a risk that overnight you go bust, right? And he has to then sell that Tesla stock into the market to get his money back. Because remember, he's giving you cash. Yeah. So the second thing he's going to say, he's going to say, okay, let's say on stocks, I think it's like 50% haircut. You know better than me about on stocks. But treasury bonds, typically it's like 10% haircuts. Um, and whatever, 5%, 10% on credit, it's like 20, 25, depending on, on the name. And also the value of that collateral might move as well, right? Correct, but that's reset every day. Right. You reset that every day. It's an overnight transaction, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you say, great, okay, I'll take that 50 grand in cash. And the repo guy will then say, okay, but you've got to pay me 
I don't know, I'll pay, you've got to pay me, I don't know, X percent on that, mm -hmm. right? On that cash. Or if it, in the case of Tesla, I guess you would be paid for the privilege of lending it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so at the end of that transaction, you would owe the repo dealer 50 grand plus the repo rate plus minus the repo rate, and he gives you your stuff back. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now that, in when they talk about it in the rates market, what they're talking about is they're saying um, that a, a bank will have as part of their assets, part of like Basel II, they have to own certain amounts of liquid kind of risk-free assets as part of their capital base. Right. Typically, these are government bonds. They are some AAA assets that are allowed, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And what they do is, is that they hold it on their balance sheet, but they also lend it out to get the, the income, mm -hmm. right? So they will, the Fed will have a repo facility where they will either, you know, the way they control the Fed funds rate is that they have essentially what they call repos and reverse repos, right? And I can always get confused which way around it is. You can look it up on investing.com or whatever. I can never remember it. But typically, a bank will, if a bank has too many bonds, they'll go to the Fed and they'll say, here's some bonds, give me some cash, mm -hmm. right? And the Fed will essentially borrow cash, lend them money mm -hmm. with, with bonds as collateral and the banks will pay essentially interest on that cash, right? And then reverse repo would be the other way around where the rather than receiving cash, you're going to give the Fed cash. You're going, yeah. to, you're going to take bonds back. You're going to take the bonds back. And why would you do that? Well, you would do that because you essentially get a... Um, cash will yield you X, whereas your repo could be higher, right? Like right now you have excess, the, the way the Fed holds bank reserves is that they've got what they've called in, interest on excess reserves, mm. which is like, I think eight basis points or something. Mm. Whereas the repo rate could be like 15 basis points. Right. right. So it makes a lot of sense. Rather than holding excess cash and reserves at the Fed, you're way better off saying, here you go, take the, the cash and give me the bonds and I'll take the 15 basis points instead of eight. Okay, okay, I see. Right? That's how they kind of control the level of Fed funds, my understanding anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is pretty complex. Yeah. Pretty complex, yeah. right? And this is just scratching the surface, right? But below, below that, you've got this you know, reverse repo facility where basically the Fed just takes a bunch of cash um, and gives people a bunch of bonds, right? That's the thing you see every day. The 80 counterparties took 1.5 trillion, mm -hmm, whatever. Mm. Um, and then what does the Fed then do with that cash? Because they have to give it back the next day anyway, right? Or does it keep getting rolled, basically? A lot of it gets rolled. A lot of it right. gets rolled. But the Fed just keep the cash, right? It's got cash. I mean, the Fed issue cash. They've got cash. I mean, the thing that the easiest way to understand, I guess, QE, QT, all this stuff, mm. is to just think about it in terms of a ledger, right? So at the beginning of the transaction, a bank has bonds, and they have a reserve balance at the Federal Reserve, right? Mm. They sell the bonds to the Fed. They don't have any bonds, but their reserve balance goes up. They don't sell the bonds to the Fed. They just, they, they give the bonds to the, right? Well, they give the bonds to the Fed and their reserve balance goes up. Yeah. But then right. they have to, but then they have to pay some funding, right? On that, uh, on those. No, no, I think, it, I mean, we're just talking about a straightforward transaction. We'll oh, sorry, out. we're not talking about repo anymore. No, we're not talking about repo anymore. Oh, I'm, right, saying, right. Like, I'm saying the easiest way to understand all this stuff is to think about it like, 
Yeah. yeah. It's like a spreadsheet. It's because a... there's the whole because there's the whole thing about money printing, right? Like some people believe that QE is money printing, that printed money finds its way into asset prices. That's why we've had the kind of run-ups that we've had. Then other people say, well, they're legally not allowed to print money, so that's all rubbish. And actually that money just gets clogged and stuck into the system and doesn't go anywhere because it sits as bank reserves, basically, right? So so which is it, right? Does it, does it, I, I mean, it clearly impacts asset prices, but is it impacting asset prices because the motivations of other investors are changing and the incentives are changing and making them take more risk, as, risky assets because they don't earn anything in risk less assets? Is that's really, but while, but the actual money that's being printed through, through QE doesn't actually really go anywhere. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a tough one. I, I would arguably land in the former camp that QE does lead to increase in asset prices. And the way I look at it, yeah. whether it's right or wrong, but is I look at it as a transmission mechanism, right? So if the Fed is buying treasury bonds, um, then the guy that owns the treasury goes, okay, I'll sell you my treasury. I'm going to go out and buy a muni bond. Exactly. The muni bond guy is going to buy an IG bond. The IG bond guy is going to buy a high yield bond. The high yield bond is going yeah. to go out and buy some equities. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Ripple effect, right? right? Makes... And, and the thing is that, like, I mean, anecdotally, you can see this happening a lot, right? Like, I mean, I remember there was one, I think I read an article once about a guy who basically ran, developed a developed market equity fund. Um, and every time the Bank of Japan did QE, he knew three days later he was going to get a call with X amount coming in. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, right? yeah. Because all these regional banks are selling. So I do think the QE does, it, it forces people down the risk curve. Right? Yeah. Some people call it financial depression. Um, but I can definitely see how that goes that way. That now, 100% right. That's now, 100% right. Now, how does it go? Now, the next question is, does it now go the other way with quantitative tightening? Yeah. And I think we're about to find out. And we're about to find yeah. out how I, I think the odds are it does though, right? I mean, it's going to be fairly hard if it's done that much in one direction. But 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 then this is it's also a function of how fast they rein it in, basically, right? You know, because if they rein it in too quickly, then, then you're just going to get a vacuum to the downside and they're not going to want that. So they're going to tread fairly carefully, I would assume, as the way the way they pull pull back, you know. Well, we hope, right? We hope. I mean, people make mistakes all the time. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, we can hope that they do that. We can hope that you know our these people that we've given this immense amount of power to are. They've got a very hard. Um, they've got a very narrow sort of margin for error here, right? They've got to somehow regain credibility by getting in front of. They know they're behind the curve on inflation. They know they need to hike rates. They need to regain credibility by actually hiking rates and talking probably quite hawkishly, at least for the next few months whilst at the same time sort of convincing the market that they're going to be care they're going to be data driven and they're going to be like not pulling back liquidity I, so much i don't know how they're going to balance that right That's, i don't think they are yeah yeah my my conspiracy theory and it's just a theory look at the end of the day we all read stuff and we all take our own biases and you know i'm not saying i'm a crazy conspiracy theorist like you know i don't think like, like me put a microchip <laughs> in, my, in my arm or whatever but i think that like you know, the politics of it are going to make life very difficult. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Bruce Kovner, when he wrote, when he was interviewed in like the Market Wizards books, one of the things he always said is, is that like, 
politics drives the market in a, in a bigger way than most people give it credit for, mm. right? Mm. Now, the, if you looked at the confirmation hearings for all these Fed people, and I don't know why I watched these things, but I did, you know, in between like, you know, to my mind, the really dumb questions of, you know, do you think raising the education level is gonna help the economy, Mr. Fed chairman, right? <laughs> you also had all these guys from Midwestern states and from everywhere saying, people are writing to me, they're saying there's a bunch of inflation and they wanna know why we're still easing policy. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're saying the price of this has gone up, the price of this has gone up, the price of this has gone up. And that's everybody. Yeah. Now, yeah. The, the bind that I think the Fed are in mm. is that do we believe, I, I personally don't, I'm not going to say do we, I personally don't believe that them raising rates is going to do too much about inflation. Right? I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Now, in the same way that doing QE didn't really raise inflation. No. No, no, totally. Right. Totally right. So yeah, yeah. let's look at their old reaction function, which was, okay, QE didn't work. Normal people, I would say, well, this is it. I'm showing my bias here. Let's just say normal people like me um, would say, well, it didn't work. Why are we still doing it? Let's try something else. Mm. Their reaction function was, we just didn't do enough. That's why it didn't work. Mm. And my concern about this is that we know, well, we know, we think we know, that inflation is not going to go down with a series of rate hikes. But the thing is that if they can't control inflation on the way up and they can't control inflation on the way down, that's kind of existential, right? Yeah, what can they control? It, yeah, does, yeah. it does ponder the question, what's the point of view? Mm. So my, my worry, my, the way I'm thinking about it, the way is that they're probably going to go harder. To prove that there's a point in having well, them. They, because like they're not they're not normal, right? When things don't work, they don't turn around and say, okay, we got it wrong. They say, no, we need to do more. We didn't do enough. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I definitely agree the tail risk is they do way more than the market anticipates. I don't think it's that they do. I mean, there's loads of people going, oh, they're gonna hike two or three times and they're gonna stop because the market won't let them, basically, right? I, I'm struggling with that right now. To be honest, um, but it but it'd be interesting to see, right? Because if the market really does shank thirty percent in a matter of weeks, which could happen, right? We saw it happen in March twenty twenty. We're so used to them doing or saying something, right? The question is, do they do that this time round? Right. Well, so it's interesting. I think again, I watched the confirmation hearings again. I wish anyway. I got I got two main insights out of it. The first was the inflation one. The second one was when the congressman, like it was a congressman or a senator, asked him, do you think you can be Paul Volcker? Right? Because yeah, he said, yeah, yeah, you yeah. have the tools. And look, I, I'm no facial kind of expert on what people's faces look like. <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you, there was a pretty dirty look there. That was like a kind of, I mean, you know, this is, maybe this is a family-friendly friendly pod podcast, but like, that was kind of like a bad word, you kind of face. Okay. Right? Like, I think there's a bit of a gauntlet that's been thrown. Okay. So like uh, a challenge, like a challenge to him. Yeah. yeah. Let's see what you're made of, son. Yeah. Right? I think this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. This will define yeah. Jerome Powell, right? Mm, it will. It either will. go down as this lack Arthur Burns in the 70s, because everyone's talking about like Arthur Burns, 
He didn't like his inflation numbers, so he created a new measure of inflation, which was lower. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's why we have CPI, X, food and energy, right? Because they basically yeah. said, well, we can't impact food and energy. So why are we, why are we trying to target it? Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Or he's going to go down as Paul Volcker. Mm -hmm. Now, he looks like the kind of guy that cares about his legacy. Now, it's unscientific. It's really kind of conspiracy theorists. It's not grounded in data, anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting. It's interesting. It stacks up. Stacks up. All right, look, um, we are running low, so let's let's get on to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, right? Um, but we're really, really good stuff so far. Uh, hopefully, the audience appreciating it. Um, but basically, you obviously worked for a bank for over twenty years. Uh, you now don't, right? So, question is, you know, how have you found that transition to kind of trading at home for yourself, your own money, or whoever your investors may be, if you have investors, and um, and, you know, what and how do you trade now? Because I'm pretty sure you don't sit there trading random credits and stuff, PA, right? So yeah, if, I, if I had the money to, maybe, but like, sadly, yeah. sadly, no. Uh, maybe if I'd been in equities. But the, the um, so I think my journey, so when I started, when I left the bank, I think, you know, trading, it, it's difficult. I think I went in kind of naively thinking, yeah, it'll be fine. I'll figure mm. it out. Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and my my first port of call is that okay, you know, I'm going to learn a bit about machine learning, AI, and figure out if there's something to do there. Um, and I did some courses in that stuff. Um, I did some, and then I guess this was I guess Jan 21 when meme stocks were all taking off, and I discovered I guess you know options, and I signed up for things like Spot Gamma and, and all that stuff. And then options are kind of where I kind of stuck. Um, because they were analogous to kind of the derivative stuff that I was doing before, right? Like you can generate carry, yeah. you know, that, that dimension of time, which I found very appealing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of what I do now is, is on the option side. Um, you know, I started out, I guess, you know, to let's answer the first question, how have I found it? I found it pretty difficult, to be honest. Um, it, the first kind of six to nine months were very, very difficult. Um, because, you know, at a bank, you kind of know what you're doing, right? You know what your edge is, you know what you're mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, how do you, what is your edge at a bank? It's well, it's talking to customers, figuring out what they're doing, uh, yeah. going along with them, finding out where they're wrong, putting trades together, you, you know, and you have that broking angle as well, right? Where you're crossing. You have so much information at your disposal. It's yeah, like, it's all there. Yeah. And when you're at home, finding that repeatable, profitable um, strategy mm. is very difficult. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. You know, I started out looking at futures, uh, which is hard. Um, I'm not a great futures trader, to be honest. I'm getting a bit better this year because I have to be, but I wasn't a great futures trader. Um, the option stuff, I kind of gravitated towards things like condors and strangles and stuff like that. And then... That's uh, stuff I like. Yeah, as you do. Um, and then, you know, then it was like, you know, do I want to systematically sell puts, which worked for a while, then I started looking at the zero day. So, you know, what do I trade now? These days, I do a lot of kind of um, essentially uh, strangles and condors, which seem to work. On, uh, on S&P or? On SPX mostly. SPX right. mostly. I mean, right. I'm looking at doing some more stuff on the single name side, single stock stuff, but I haven't really found a a proper framework. I mean, there's just so many things on SPX. And also you don't need to need, there's no idiosyncratic stuff on SPX. 
Which, yeah, you, there's no idiosyncratic risk, right? You're not going to get some random piece of news blow you out of the water. But, yeah. but do you um, and do you lean on Spot Gamma or anyone else's kind of metrics to guide that decision as to where strikes should be placed? Well, where sizing wise, do you adjust your size based on various so indicators or anything? Kind of. I mean, where I use Spot Gamma uh, the most is basically their Gamma Index stuff. Right. In terms of like, is there high gamma in the market? Then I'll do short dated condors. If there is low gamma, you know, you stray a little bit further out um, okay. because the vol is priced a bit better. Right. Like one of the trades which worked last year, doesn't really work this year, was basically selling zero day condors right around the kind of the 15 delta point. Mm-hmm. You're getting paid essentially on a 10 wide thing. You're getting paid like 35 percent of the spread. And with gamma, what it was on a daily basis, you're doing okay, right? That was a high just, sharp ratio trade. Just for those who don't know what condor is, seeing as we keep going on about them. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you kind of need to have a bit of options knowledge to understand the last part of this conversation. But basically, it's a way of earning carry. It's a way of earning yield by selling out of the money options on the S&P. Um, and they have a premium, so you get to collect that. And you buy out of the money options that are even further away from the money just to cover your tail risk, right? Just in case a big move happens in either direction. If you just sold, if you just sold naked strangles, which is what it would be if you sold a call and a put out of the money and just left them like that, that's got a lot more unlimited downside risk um, and that could really blow up your account, right? So condos are a nice way. Yeah, and they, you know, we've all been there, right? Um, so they're a nice way to mitigate that tail risk and just kind of cap your losses and that, that that's what condor is for people just before in case they know <laughs> before we go before we get start talking more about this stuff yeah. um and so yeah i mean that's the kind of stuff that i like to do i like to find those like kind of the the microstructure the market microstructure type edges right like you know yeah. you know these trades are going to be there for a while yeah because i think that what you know what what i found was if i was trading edges as they're called they disappear right they you know sometimes things work and, you know, you've discussed it on your option insight stuff about like selling strangles on BTC and Ethereum into the DOV trades, right? Those trades work until they don't. Yeah, until the whole world starts doing them, right? Yeah, right. And yeah. whereas if you're capturing a risk premium every day, that's a lot more robust. It's going to last a bit longer, mm-hmm. right? Well, it should last for a while, right? In theory, because essentially you're, you're, you're giving the market what they want to buy. Yeah, you're like an insurer. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing where you're kind of just you're taking in a premium and, you know, you're trying to be a little bit smarter about it. Like ultimately, the market's very good at pricing the arbitrage away, like the super normal profit, as the economists would call it. Mm -hmm. The thing is that if you can find a way to do it in a semi-systematic way, like avoiding, like, you know, one of the things like that's zero condor, zero day condor thing, like if you avoided Fed days, your expected return goes up a lot. Yeah, exactly. And that's a quite a simple filter, right? Where you can yeah. say, you know, like, do I really want to take this event risk unnecessarily? The market's priced a little premium for the event, but I don't know if it's enough, right? So yeah. why not just sit on the sidelines on this one and wait for things to find a level and stabilize, right? And then that's that's a common sense approach. Like, I think a lot of these systematic trading strategies are run by people who are quants. Right. And they're very mathematical about it. And I have to do it every day because I've backtested it every day. And the model tells me this. But if you add a bit of discretion to it and be like, why do I want to take the unnecessary risk that the Fed says something stupid and moves the market 3%, which they have been known to do? 
I'll just filter that out and use my common sense discretion. And I totally agree. There's a lot of alpha in that basically like using systematic strategies that are robust and back tested that are chasing some risk premium or some alpha, but then you've got the guy with the discretionary experience on the dials, dialing them up or down based on, you know, their, their feel basically. Right. And I, I think feels worth something when you've been doing this for 30 odd years. Right. A hundred percent. And I think that like, you know, when you start looking for those, they're harder to find, but they are a lot more consistent and you actually just, it, it just feels a lot better, right? Like some of them don't set up for a long time, right? Like the zero day condors probably haven't set up for a while just because yeah. there's been a lot of event risk, right? Like you don't really want to sell realized volatility right now. No, no, totally, totally. But the thing is, I mean, I had a chat with Brent, right? Recently at Spot Gamma and I was saying the vol regime has changed right it's not yeah. where we were last year last year floor in vol was floor in the vix was 15 and it's very likely that this year's floor is going to be 20 to 25 even right potentially yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and but the thing is is that like you know you can find other things right like these days i do a lot of zero day spreads right zero day puts put credit spreads call credit spreads Right. If you think the market's exhausted on the way up, you have a directional bias to your theta earn, basically. Yeah. Typically, like those things work really well when you're kind of fading the market. And the reason they work is because you make money in two out of three states. Right. Typically, price goes up, down, sideways. Mm -hmm. If you can narrow it down so you make money two out of three. Yeah. 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 Totally. It's about right. probabilities. It's about, right. you know, improving your odds. Totally. Yeah. Agree. Once something has moved already. And you've got like, especially since you've only got like three or four hours left of the trading day, maybe five, six, maybe if you're in London. Yeah. Those are great trades, right? Because time works for you. And I think that's yeah. the key thing. That's why I kind of gravitated towards options. Just like, you know, as a high yield guy, we always look at our carry. We always look at our funding. So, so it sounds like you're not, you're never a buyer of options though. That's what it sounds like. Do you ever buy options? I used to buy options and then like, um, I started speaking to you. No, um, but, <laughs> that's but, ironic because I do buy options. No, no, but more of it was I think I buy them differently. I think before I was buying kind of um, put spreads, call spreads, etc. Yeah. Now these days I do a lot more kind of broken wing butterflies, ladders. Uh, okay. To okay. minimize the premium, so I do buy them when I have a directional view. Like right now, I've got one where I think we're going to get to forty five hundred by the end of the month, just because everyone's kind of bearish. But I've yeah. done it as a broken wing butterfly because I didn't want to pay that much premium. Sure, sure. Kind of like a set and forget, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I will buy vol. Um, but yeah, most of the time, I, I think, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the reason I'm more comfortable selling it is because when I look at the money that like Citadel, Two Sigma, these guys make, like, I just think that those guys, if they sell options too cheaply, they'd be out of business right now. Mm -hmm. so chances are that the prices are like kind of at that equilibrium point i believe that like you know on a short enough time frame the market's fairly efficient um so i'll go with those guys i'll be a seller of options at those kinds of levels fair enough fair enough yeah. all right man uh we've overrun a little bit but you know i, I i'm super interested in what you had to say and uh really appreciate you coming on man it's no, great, thank great you for having me it's been good it's been good for hopefully i've answered a few of your questions but yeah no no your listeners like it did great Cool, man. Take care, yeah? Cheers. Thanks, dude. Bye.